0: This is episode 241 of the Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts podcast. This episode is titled, Thinking Together with Alex Chambers. Welcome to Books, Shows, Tunes, and Mad Acts, the show about stuff we like. I'm your host, Jennifer Crittenden. And sometimes I'm lucky enough to be joined by my co-host, Bill Aho, who has an ear for good music and an eye for the extraordinary. Books, shows, tunes, and mad acts is brought to you by Discreet Guide, a training company for improving your speaking and writing skills. We hope you enjoy the show. I am so pleased to welcome a new guest to the show today. Alex Chambers is with me. So welcome to the show, Alex. Thanks, Jennifer. I'm going to introduce him. He runs WFIU's Arts Desk and produces and hosts WFIU's Interstates, a weekly podcast and radio show about arts, culture, and ideas from Southern Indiana and beyond. And I should mention WFIU is the public radio station out of Indiana University in Bloomington, Indiana, my hometown. (laughs) And I met Alex when I was back in Indiana, as I've mentioned several times in recent podcasts, uh, which was such a lovely trip back there. And Alex and I were on a panel about podcasting. So that's how I met Alex. And I'm uh, really honored that he agreed to come on the show. So excited about our conversation today. Alex is the co-creator of How to Survive the Future, a podcast about the present produced in partnership with Indiana Humanities. He has a Ph.D. in American Studies, and his dissertation was called Climate Violence and the Poetics of Refuge. He's also written a book of poems called Bindings of Preparation, which is about domestic life and empire. (laughs) It sounds really tantalizing. In his spare time, he teaches audio storytelling at the IU Media School. When he's not in the woods gathering sound, you might see him out for a run on the streets of Bloomington. So Bloomington and Indiana is Uh, are going to feature in our podcast today. Southern Indiana, to me, is such a peculiar and interesting place. I always think of it as being really special. Of course, I come from there, so I might uh, feel that way. So, Alex, I wanted to ask you what your orientation is to the area, and if your feelings about Southern Indiana have changed over time.
1: Oh, they've definitely changed. Yeah, um, <laughs> I <laughs> I did not grow up here. I grew up in uh, Western Massachusetts. Oh, okay. Indiana was not on my map at all mm-hmm. when I was growing up, and I don't even just mean Southern Indiana. Like any of Indiana, there was mm-hmm. I was like, oh, I guess it's one of those. It's one of the states. You know, that was about as much as I knew. I when I was applying for colleges. I was a musician. I was an aspiring flutist, um, among other things.
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. You are just such an interesting man. (laughs) There are so many things about you. (laughs)
1: Um, Yeah, I've I've pursued a lot of things. I think Um, Mm -hmm. I was looking at schools, and you know, we have the here in Bloomington, we have the Jacobs uh, School of Music, which is one of the top conservatories in the country. And yet, in spite of that, I didn't even consider applying here because I was like, Southern Indiana, what's that? What why would anyone go there? But I did go to college and uh I ended up in Michigan, met someone who I would uh then end up uh marrying and later divorcing. But um we she is from here in Bloomington.
0: Oh wow.
1: We came here after college. You
0: married a townie. <laughs> I, I married a brave. townie, exactly.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah so um, I married into the state. I um, am a hoosier by marriage and uh, I am now here and I've been here for I mean, it's been a home base for you know half my life now.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And so to your question about whether my feelings have changed, yeah, I mean, like I think I've gotten a much stronger sense of the uh, um, the complexity of the place. Like, you know, I used to I probably I don't know what I thought about it before, but I just thought, you know, I think what maybe a lot of East Coasters think about the the Midwest, which is that it's just kind of a vast cultural wasteland. Nothingness. Um, nothingness, uh-huh. yeah. Uh-huh. And of course, then we can talk about Bloomington, you know, where IU is as like the, you know, the there was those there were those bumper stickers, what, like a decade ago, the little blue dot in a big red state or something like that. Mm-hmm. So like Bloomington has its own, you know, is unique, I think in the state to a certain degree um, with the university and everything. And I've come to really love Bloomington and this is certainly a home base, but I also have gotten to know Southern Indiana beyond Bloomington a bit. It's really also great and complex and there's interesting people doing interesting things. Like I was just um, talking earlier today with um, some folks who were telling me about, about an hour South in pale, which mm-hmm. as you know, small, small town. Mm-hmm. There was this couple who five or six years ago bought this old, like an old factory building, uh, like a small factory, the Tomato Products Company, I think is what it's called. And mm-hmm. now they've got like a wood-fired oven and they're doing like community events and lecture series and all kinds of things down in down in the little town of Paoli. There's all kinds of interesting things happening all over the place, around the world. And I just happen to have gotten to know the parts around here.
0: Yeah, your description of what you thought of Indiana Reminds me of a time when I asked a friend of mine. I said, "When I say I'm from Indiana, what do you think people think?" And he was from Chicago, and he said, "They think nothing. Said, it's <laughs> as though you, you he said, 'It's as though you said you come from mm.
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly.' It's so true.
0: <laughs> Although I do think sometimes now." people have more negative thoughts just because of the whole red state, blue state thing.
1: Yeah. For better or worse, Mike Pence has put us on the map.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Mike Pence put us on the map, so to speak. Right. And so depending on how you feel about Mike Pence, yeah, Yeah. it's going to color what you think. I think that's one of the things that's so neat about your radio show is that you get to explore these different parts of Southern Indiana and listening to your show I was struck by that too, like not the couple from Paoli necessarily, but just all the things that you discover through your radio show, I think is really, it's just really interesting and neat. Are there things that still surprise you about the Midwest or uh, Indiana?
1: Um, Yeah, I mean, always. I think that's one of the, that's been one of the fun things about starting to do this show, for example, is... Like have a like a professional reason to go just find interesting people mm-hmm. all over the place. One of the early shows that I did was I talked with these this couple who are both uh, professors at IU, but his family they're lim- they have a limestone company in Ellettsville, just outside oh, of Bloomington, yeah. um, the wow. Bybee Stone Mill. You might have heard of them. Uh-huh. He and his wife have like a, a sort of a high end design company and do kind of design stuff that I don't really fully understand. Um, But they were, it was just, it was neat to hear them talk about some of the history of limestone in the area and how it was used like as a kind of both to build kind of working class houses. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got into conversations about what front porches meant and why we Don't have front porches anymore, but what they meant in working class structures. So that was one just like surprising conversation that I never would have even thought about that was like super based in here in southern Indiana. Mm -hmm. And then another one was going over to Columbus, which listeners may not, especially if they don't know Indiana and think it's a vast nothingness, uh, might also not know Columbus, which is uh, a smaller town than Bloomington, but is um, actually very much on the map for high-end architecture.
0: Uh huh. Mm-hmm.
1: And so I so I went over there and ended up there on a day when there was a Latino festival oh. in the in the town and oh. Fiesta Latina. And I ended up talking with some people. Um, there's a huge Latino population there, and yeah. you know I didn't know that either. And so I got mm-hmm. to know um, a young woman who was doing an art project um, with her community. And so yeah, it's it's. Again, like it's a lot more complex than we might mm-hmm. realize, otherwise. Mm-hmm.
0: I think is there a documentary that was done about the architecture in Columbus, Indiana?
1: I think it's actually a fictional film called oh, Columbus. Okay.
0: Oh, okay. It's been, you know, in the back of my mind to see that, but i I never have seen it mine too. It. It's I, been
1: in the back of my mind, my mind too. <laughs> I, I need yeah. to see it. My parents yeah, I saw it to see it. and they said it was uh, to them they found it a little a little slow.
0: A little slow. Uh-huh.
1: Just, just well, FYI. architecture.
0: Not a lot of action with <laughs> no, architecture, sure. right? right. <laughs> I just stand there.
1: <laughs> exactly.
0: Uh
1: huh.
0: So yeah, it's interesting you're mentioning about the Hispanic population because I think we in California we kind of tend to think that that's like our thing or us in Texas, right? But I remember being really surprised when I looked at the population figures for Indiana, how many Latinos live in the state. In fact, I lived for a while in Warsaw, Indiana, which is way in the north. And we had several stores in that town that were run by Latinos. And my husband tells a story about going in one and no one spoke English in that (laughs) store. Yeah. How cool. Who would have thought, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Talk about interstate surprise. Uh Yeah. So yeah, to go back to this, uh, to go back to Californians, and thinking that there's nothing in Indiana, are there things that you particularly enjoy sharing about Southern Indiana or Indiana?
1: Not to just keep hitting on the complexity, but that that's the first word that comes that comes mm-hmm. to my mind that uh, that there are all kinds of people. I think two other more specific thoughts come to mind. One is it's really gorgeous. Uh As you know, we have a lot of rolling hills. That's another thing that people think about about Indiana is the flatness. Um, A writing teacher of mine has a book. uh, He's from Fort Wayne called The Flatness and Other Landscapes. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's about the Midwest in general, but you know, he's from Northern Indiana. But down here, the glaciers didn't make it down this far. Mm -hmm. So uh, we have these beautiful rolling hills and woods, and there's a lot of great hiking in the area. It's a gorgeous place. And like, and vistas, I mean, maybe not quite mm-hmm. like the Rockies, but mm-hmm. or even the Berkshires, my my sort of my other mountains, but it's gorgeous. And so that's uh, that, that's a thing. I think also after Trump got elected, a lot of people were very surprised and um, uh, a little traumatized, I think, uh, myself mm-hmm, included, definitely. like what was what was that all about and scared and felt like we needed to do something more than what we had been doing. And a lot of us, myself included, made a lot of efforts that weren't really maybe very well thought out. But one thing that did happen, I think partly as a result of that, was an organization got started here called <laughs> Hoosier Action, which oh. is a community organizing group. Oh, I got involved with them, and they're very focused on working in rural parts of the state. Um, oh. it, it kind of was seated in Bloomington, but, but is really based kind of more beyond, like, around Bloomington. Not oh. in Bloomington, and one of the things that I loved learning, that I was so just, I found really helpful, I think, to learn, was the ways people people's politics are really complex. Also, yeah, like so, like people, there are plenty of people who who voted for Trump who also think we should have universal health care, for example, or sure. I think mm-hmm. you know. And so I think, you know, again, if we're in these kind of liberal bubbles, whether it's college towns like Bloomington or whether it's the coastal, you know, the coasts, Mm -hmm. I think it's easy to think that a place is all kind of one kind of people or even that a person is all one kind of people. Yeah,
0: <laughs> right That's and, probably our biggest mistake right there right
1: <laughs> Exactly. And so it was so neat to go out and start to talk to people who I probably wouldn't have otherwise if it weren't mm-hmm. for this for this group who I wouldn't have encountered who lived in some small towns around the state and like in conversations with them realize that they aren't just like diehard Trump supporters who are also like white supremacist racists, but that they're They're complicated, Mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, maybe they're pro-gun, but also pro-choice or I don't know, I mean, just just different combinations of things. Mm -hmm. And so I can now can't even remember exactly what your question was, but, um, (laughs) (laughs) but I think that being able to see, I think that's one thing I, I, what I mean, honestly, it's something that I hope to be able to convey. Yeah, I aspire to convey through my show Mm -hmm. and I haven't, I'm still working on that a bit. I have a couple of episodes I feel like that maybe have started to convey that, but I'm it's a it's a goal.
0: Yeah. I really appreciate you saying that and also working on that because I think when we put people into boxes and treat them as though they're one dimensional, it it pisses people off. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it can really lead to a lot of misunderstanding. And you know this whole red blue thing is really unfortunate, in my opinion, because we are so much more complicated than a color, right? Yeah. yeah
1: so exactly.
0: I think you're doing really important work, actually, because of Thanks. that. Thanks. I noticed that you used the word heartland um, in inner states, and I've thought about that word now because of that. Of course, for me, since I grew up there, you know, my heart really is still there, right? Yeah. There are a lot of things that um, I'm just emotionally very connected to. But I was curious if you, if that word had a special meaning for you uh, in the context of your show.
1: I think, on, to be honest, I was probably just f- trying to find a synonym for the Midwest or something, like okay. trying to you think mm-hmm. about another way to to refer to this region. I did, you know, as I was developing the show and trying to figure out what it was like, what to say it was about, because I wanted to be able to have kind of a a wide palette to be able to do a lot of Mm -hmm. different kinds of things. Mm -hmm. But I also wanted to just be able to to say something about it. And (laughs) so I was thinking that the regional focus was going to be an important aspect of what was, you know, I think going to make it hopefully meaningful. And I was trying to figure out how to think about, like, what this region is. Mm -hmm. Because for one thing, I wasn't sure exactly you know how I would plot the specific region on the map. You know, was mm-hmm. I going to include Eastern Ohio? Was you know what or was just going to be Indiana? And, you know, right. But also how to describe it because here in Bloomington we're south of the Rust Belt. Mm-hmm. I would have thought about you know something related to the Rust Belt that felt like it encompassed more than just the the borders of this state, but also felt relevant as a region. But we're not technically part of the Rust Belt. Mm-hmm. I was like, are we Kentuckiana? Well that doesn't really feel like what I'm doing either. So I had trouble articulating what the region was, the heartland as a, another way of thinking about this particular region. But honestly, when I hear the heartland, I still think.
0: Just the middle of of the country. Yeah, Which it, which is not the same as the Midwest. I mean, it is funny that all these terms are a little bit wrong in a way, right? I mean, my husband's always saying, well, it's not the Midwest. (laughs) But it's interesting, too, this idea of, you know, your heart is inside, right? We don't see it. And your show is kind of about that, too. It's sort of about the things that we don't necessarily see, at least from the coasts we don't see. Yeah, it's sort of interesting that Heartland is a little bit of an old word, now, I think so much of the country is driven by the coasts, what's happening on the East Coast and what's happening on the West Coast. I mean, that's where the big populations are. But yeah, it's funny that, you know, I think a lot of people who live in the heartland might say, well, this is the real America. California and New York are, that's not real America. But immediately I think about Pulse. And certainly the pulse of the American culture is from New York and California, right? Or right. at least the East Coast in California. So yeah. I don't think of it as really the driving force of the country anymore. Yeah. But but maybe but maybe it is true that some of our older values or traditional ways of living are more associated with the Midwest, maybe just in our minds, but also maybe in reality, right? Maybe.
1: Yeah, it's funny. I also I think I uh, tend to be kind of skeptical of a lot of generalizations about different geographic parts of the country. You know, this idea that like people are nicer in one part than the other, Mm -hmm. you know, Um, Mm -hmm. and yet, we can't deny that the different geographies have shaped our country, like the fact that the South was where people were held as slaves shaped the whole country. Certainly. But that relationship was, the distinction between the North and the South was key. And then the distinction, I do think the rural-urban distinction is one that that plays out pretty significantly for us. Mm -hmm. Whether that is really any different in the distinction between, say, Bloomington and Martinsville, which is the next town north of here, versus, I don't know, Boston and some small rural town in western Massachusetts. Right. I don't know if there's necessarily that big a difference. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So...
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of an old term, and as things have changed, heartland doesn't seem quite as appropriate maybe as yeah, it when, once was. Or or some people might feel that it's even more so that that's where <laughs> yeah. the heart of my country is. Yeah, <laughs> I have another question about red blue uh, states and and also this idea of a lack of understanding between these different cultures and. Sometimes a lack of empathy, which, you know, distresses me a lot right now in this particular time. So, I, yeah, I was curious if with the interstates you had in mind the idea of helping people understand more what there is in the flyover states, or if that was not part of your plan.
1: I think that, I think that that is. I mean, I guess I have maybe like a secret desire to have the show end up being listened to all around the country, you know, Mm -hmm. maybe WNYC will pick it up. (laughs) And so I do think there's an element of wanting to communicate something about this part of the country more broadly. Mm -hmm. At the same time, though, I think it's really important. I think local media is really important, too. Uh I think it's really important for people to be able to hear their own stories on the radio. And, or on podcasts. And so, honestly, like, I think the service that I'm providing, insofar as I'm providing some kind of service, it's probably a bigger service, what I'm doing locally mm-hmm. is probably more important and is probably going to have more of an impact than maybe some sort of grand message to the, the whole country.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, that's interesting, right? I mean, you've kind of crossed over, right? You really are a local Now, (laughs)
1: yes,
0: and and, you know, and so, yeah, so your orientation is not, oh, here I'm an outsider looking in and look at this curious thing I'm gonna poke for your benefit. It you really are embedded now in the culture and the community, and so that gives you a different, yeah, a different perspective, yeah, yeah, that's yeah, that's interesting. I will say that that's something that's really interesting to me right now is this idea of sort of appreciating what's local. I suppose this ebbs and flows. But right now, you know, as there's a preoccupation with sort of national politics and national figures, or I think at least in the side of journalism, people are realizing how important local is. As I listen to your show, it's very interesting to me because there are so many things I didn't know. Right. Even though I grew up there. Hmm.
1: Good. Mm-hmm. You know, at the same time, I do hope it's, you know, like I, I hope the episodes don't just feel like they're, I hope they're saying something bigger at the same time, Uh huh. Um, which is, I guess I, I hope I'm try I try to strive for like something that's going to be in a place, but also feel like it speaks to people regardless of the place that they're in.
0: Yeah, we're going to talk in a minute here about storytelling, but I think that's a really useful technique, right, is often to start with the specific and then go big from there. That seems to work more effectively when you are trying to educate people about things that, you know, of course, people love stories, right? But, But I think that works especially well in your show is that you do talk about very specific, small, concrete things. It's not a show about, whoa, we're going to talk about, yeah, some big ideology. But the message, I think, ultimately is more powerful in in that way. It seems to me.
1: I don't know. (laughs) Yeah, I hope so.
0: Okay, and then just a curious question here. You seem to end the show often with a sound of a a place, a field, or a river, and I wanted to know why. (laughs)
1: Uh, I think I wanted, um, I like shows that have a little something extra. And Mm. uh, I also, as I got into doing this podcasting thing, I really enjoyed going out and just recording sounds you know mm-hmm. kind of playing with like this this equipment that I had gotten and when I first started I think I thought oh this will be a good excuse for me to go walk in the woods and call it part of my job <laughs> right <laughs> that said I haven't really ended up having much time to go walk in the woods anymore <laughs> oh the show takes so much time uh so I've been trying to just find whatever sounds I can gather like on my walks to work but I also I think it's I think it's it's just nice to have different kinds of sounds on the radio I mean and I don't just mean like the literal audio clips that I played but so much of what we hear on the radio is either talking or music Mm. Mm. and I think it's nice to be able to also hear the sounds of places or just like unusual and weird sounds like it's a little art project, a little collecting project that I'm doing. Yeah. In theory it's a way to get people to listen through the credits too, but I've said the credits <laughs> pretty much the same every week now for <laughs> almost 52 weeks. They if people are listening, they know the credits.
0: Well, I have to tell this story. You know, we think so there are these nothing states, right? Like Indiana. Right. And so you sort of think, well, they're just quiet. Right. Like, <laughs> like, but when I was back in Indiana, we went on a, a really long walk with a forester around our property. And the leaves had mostly fallen down in the hollow where I live. And so the leaves were you know two feet deep and it was absolutely deafening to go on this hike (laughs) there were a bunch of us and we were making so much noise walking through the leaves none of us could hear each other talk so we're like just making this huge racket walking through the woods and then yelling at each other what (laughs) that's
1: hilarious
0: yeah and i was thinking you know, this is not what people picture when they think of going for a walk in the woods in Indiana. They think it's going to be quiet, you know, and instead it's just really loud. Yeah. And in it, at least where I grew up, too, it's just generally really loud. The bugs are really loud. The toads are really loud. The birds can be <laughs> super loud. So, yeah, if you're suffering under the illusion that Indiana is quiet, <laughs> take a trip out there because it's not.
1: Every 17 years. There's, it gets even louder.
0: Well, yeah, then the cicadas. Yeah, my God. Those things are just deafening. Yeah. It was huh Yeah, that's really neat that you do that with the show. I think that's, that's a really fun. good idea. Yeah, to transport people to another place.
1: And I'm always hoping, too, that people will send sounds in. Uh-huh. But that has yet to happen.
0: Oh, okay. So, well, so here, if anyone's listening
1: yeah, and wants exactly. to record something, wherever you are, wherever you're listening, send it in and, <laughs> you know, I'll put it on the show.
0: Yeah it's funny I spend part of the year in uh, Mammoth Lakes which is up in the Eastern Sierra and that place is unbelievably quiet even really? if you're in a place yeah where there's a noise next to you you can still you can still feel the fact that outside of that immediate close sound it is just stunningly quiet there wow. you know rocks just don't make very much noise <sighs> It's true, yeah, and it you know being up in the mountains like that, it's it's really incredible how quiet it is. So yeah, I was thinking what a contrast that yeah we we think of one place as being so noisy and another place as being so quiet. And in fact, the reverse is true. <laughs> right,
1: it's true. Yeah, that's so interesting.
0: Okay, let's uh, talk about writing and storytelling. Uh, you've written a lot, including uh, poetry, just really great. And it occurred to me that poetry in a way, is really very different from podcasting. So uh, one is written, podcasting is oral, Uh, poetry, we tend to be very spare with our words, Uh, whereas typically in podcasting, you know, we're talking and talking, words are just flowing out, we're really effusive. Poetry, you kind of meditate over or even obsess over versus podcasting, where we just talk off the top of our heads and say whatever comes into our mind. And so I was curious what you enjoy about each of those.
1: Yeah. In some ways, what I liked about poetry was that it, <laughs> was that it was short. <laughs> Uh when I was younger and starting to write it. And I I didn't really have the patience to write narrative. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, well, I guess I'm not going to be a fiction writer. And I wasn't very good at characters either. So there was that. But I do think that there was also something about the condensed emotion and feeling Mm -hmm. that a poem can create. The focus on a moment or a place, often, not always in a poem, Mm -hmm. but that it's maybe a little bit more directly about a feeling. Whereas, you know, a, a narrative, a story, fiction is often more about putting you in with a character and bringing you through that feeling kind of through what the character is, is going through. Right. And I liked that directness. I know we don't usually think of poetry as being direct, but, and I wasn't necessarily thinking of it as direct, quote unquote, at the time. But, but I think mm-hmm. that immediacy, in a sense, mm-hmm. was mm-hmm. What I, was what drew me to working in poetry. And then podcasting, you know, there's so many, I was just talking with my students last night about how many different kinds of podcasts there are, oh. and how the term podcast is, different people, I think, think of different things when they hear the word podcast. Hmm. There's what we're doing, just a, a conversation mm-hmm. that I imagine you're not gonna go through and edit a whole lot, um, maybe, I don't know, we haven't talked about that. It uh, <laughs> depends
0: on what terrible thing you say.
1: <laughs> Right. Okay, good. I'm glad I I can, uh, you know, know that you'll uh, just string together all the terrible things if uh, if it comes to that. Versus, you know, I mean, like the the show that got me into radio and podcasting was This American Life, which is highly, highly edited. You know, they labor Mm -hmm. over every breath. Mm -hmm. But I think there's something similar in a way in terms of what I end up with in my encounter with a poem versus like a good audio story. And I said versus, but what I mean is like, it's actually kind of the same thing because I think there's an immediacy of emotion. Often with stories like This American Life, you are going through with a character, like what I was saying with fiction, Mm -hmm. but you're also hearing their voice. And, you know, it was This American Life and then Fresh Air, which Uh is just, you know, I mean, they're nicely edited, but just conversations. I loved listening to conversations hearing people think together Mm -hmm. and then also hearing the emotions that can come through in a voice Mm -hmm. if it's that kind of interview brings it you know people it's a bit of a cliche now to say that the audio is like is particularly intimate but it still feels true I think that you're Mm -hmm. kind of right there thinking with the person or feeling with the person and I think that there's something similar about poetry that way so in some ways they're kind of similar to me Mm -hmm. but also, I do like talking with people. And, uh-huh. you know, you don't do that as much when you're sitting writing poems.
0: Mm-hmm. Would you like to read something?
1: Sure. Cool. So let's see. I think I'm going to read... I'm going to read this kind of this kind of fun poem. This, I wrote this probably 15 years ago now. My wife at the time, from Bloomington, as I mentioned, was really into Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the TV show.
0: Okay. (laughs) Yeah.
1: And I enjoyed it also. I didn't get quite as into it as she did, but I also enjoyed it. I, for whatever reason, decided to write a poem, an abecedarian, where uh, each line of the poem starts with the next letter of the alphabet.
0: Oh, So there's 26 lines. Okay, cool.
1: And it's called, To Buffy, Vampire Slayer. At the abandoned science lab where they store Bunsen burners, oxygen tanks, and half-empty cans of gasoline, we fell for you and your vampire lover. Dead or alive, you were irresistible for seven years, each wham and puck of the penetration of your stake, filling me with relief that a girl doing such good work, cleansing with the assurance of a president, her high school of monster bullies seduced by the insincere words of nerdy, intelligent outcasts, has the same hang-ups as any upper-middle-class California high school junior with a perfect body and consistently great hair. The pots and pans knocking around in the cupboard are calling for me to cook a linenberry pie, or better, something with meat for my hungry wife, wiped out from mowing the lawn and drinking a beer, now, on the couch in front of the TV. Back then, imagining opening the door to the science lab, we felt the heat of the power coursing through your hands, your legs, those quintessentially threatening girl eyes we could stare at for seasons. Run! Save your friends and the rest of us from the temptations of broad shoulders and booksome, lifeless cheerleaders. The undead surround us. They're fearless and chasing virgins to taste the nonchalance of innocence. We live in between, understanding that Sander will never fall for Willow. Yet he does, he does, dreaming of zombies attacking us with you at their heels.
0: <laughs> that, is, that is really excellent, Alex. That's really good. I'm gonna have to get your book. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. that, it's really excellent. I'm glad you told us that it started with the different letters because yeah, we listen to it differently. With, yeah, with yeah, yeah. Mind.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I positive.
0: I really do have to uh, give Buffy another chance. <laughs> I, I I watched a little bit. The rest of my family is really into her and that show, and they've just yeah never accepted the fact that i just i just couldn't get into it but sometimes it takes me several runs at something before i really understand and get it and yeah can move through but i really do have to i have to get your book and i have to do Buffy. (laughs) those are two takeaways if
1: if this book makes you start watching buffy i guess i've succeeded i don't know that wasn't necessarily my goal but but okay great (laughs)
0: Uh uh-huh yeah no people really really like that show the rest of my family really like cool yeah yeah so i have to but that is a fabulous poem really good thanks a lot of your work does seem to be about learning and exploring storytelling and mm-hmm. I was curious what drew you to that kind of education versus more formal education and what differences do you see in those kind of two different settings
1: Uh I <laughs> my first thought was well I you know I I was in school for way too long I Mm -hmm. I have a PhD so I did a lot of formal education too Mm -hmm. but you mean in terms of the work that I'm like putting out into the world
0: right yeah Yeah. Mm -hmm.
1: well I think they're both really important to me but I think that I mean even when I was an undergrad and like getting really excited about literary theory as like a 20 year old Mm -hmm. nerding out on you know uh, Deleuze and Guattari or whoever I was also, really interested in being able to put work out that was like that was accessible to people. Mm. That ultimately is what I really wanted to do. So, you know, I did this PhD and wrote a dissertation that was like re- pretty heavily theoretical. Like mm-hmm. it was in some ways like political philosophy and very kind of like complex advanced thinking that I enjoyed and got really into. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not the kind of thing that I think a lot of people would, you know, just want to pick up, you know, mm-hmm. at the the bookstore. And so to then rediscover radio toward the end of my PhD program as a thing that I could start to do, mm-hmm. I had interned at a radio station right after college, but was too shy to talk to people at the time. So that was made radio kind of hard. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It's kind of key. And I started getting back into it when I was finishing my PhD. And I was like, oh, there's room for like entertainment here. There's room yeah. for like working with big ideas, but also trying to entertain people, which is something I also kind of really enjoy mm-hmm. and trying to convey things in a way that's engaging mm-hmm. uh, maybe funny, you know, I don't know there's probably too many bad jokes on my show, but but really wanting to be able to I mean, but seriously, really wanting to be able to uh, draw people in and engage people that was something that I hadn't necessarily admitted to myself was important to me for a while there. and then I realized it again once I started doing radio mm-hmm. and it's just been it continued to be a great pleasure to be able to keep doing that.
0: It's such a mystery to me. Well, I work in the training field. Mm-hmm. I'm constantly baffled by the fact that people, it seems as though humans really love to learn, yeah, but they hate training. So so yeah. So what the are word we training doing? Training does
1: not sound so appealing.
0: No, if you go into work and they're like, "Oh yeah, you know, we're going to have a training next week. Mark your schedule out for Wednesday." You just have this terrible feeling, yep. like, "Oh, it's going to be such a waste and irritating." <laughs> our just our training seems to be just terrible. But people do love to learn, right? I mean, we learn that yeah. from fresh air, right? That's Mm -hmm. mostly a show about learning. Even interstates, I would say, is mostly a show about learning. Mm -hmm. And people love that. So what are we doing wrong with this quote unquote, a training? And then also, you know, to your comment about people might not want to pick up your dissertation in the bookstore. I wonder if those ideas were presented through a different medium, if in fact, they would be quite interesting to people i often wonder how much medium colors the message
1: yeah totally i think the ideas are fascinating and i am biased but i think that they're um i think they're really important and interesting ideas i absolutely think that i mean sort of like training dissertation is not the sexiest word either right um Mm -hmm. but i i think that they're would be ways to to do it. And I think if I had stayed in the academic track, which I didn't partly because I got into radio, but also because, you know, it's hard to get an academic job. Right. Um, mm-hmm. There were practical reasons. If I had stayed in that track, I think I very much would have wanted to revise the project into something that felt a little bit more accessible. Mm-hmm. But I think I have thoughts about the training piece too.
0: <laughs> Good. Maybe we could solve our problems. It's
1: terrible. <laughs> I mean, because, you know, you said that about training, and I think it's true for education in general or the education yeah. system in general. Right. So much of, you know, the time spent in, the, in education in classrooms is stultifying. Uh, mm-hmm. I think there's – I think you need to um, – I don't know the solution for training, Jennifer, sorry. I'm just (laughs) thinking more about education. (laughs) But I think that there are solutions. I think it's about helping. I think it's about really paying attention to like what people actually want. Mm -hmm. And because you're right, people actually do want to learn. We all actually, I think really do want to learn. But setting up your training or your classroom is more my experience because Mm -hmm. I've been teaching for so many years in a way that students can access something that they actually want to be doing Mm -hmm. and finding that meeting place i think is the hardest part potentially of teaching of finding where the meeting place is between the material and where the students are Mm -hmm. what they might want to get out of out of an activity or or something but giving them the opportunity i think to to think together you know Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. is is really key caring about them at least it's key for me. I guess I'll yeah. put it that way. And then I think being passionate, of course, about what you're bringing to the table, what I'm bringing to the table. Again, I, I don't have answers. I don't know what the problems, the specific problems are in training, but but I do think that I don't think there's enough love in teaching so much of the time.
0: Ah, uh, yeah. I think I think you've really landed on something. And a lot of times, the trainers are not interested in the training either. Uh, Just as many no teachers, you know, are not interested right? in what they're actually teaching. And I, I think the overlap between teaching and training is actually pretty close. Yeah. And and we're really getting at the heart of it here is how do you connect with people who have a desire to learn and you have something to offer, but often there's some sort of barrier between the two. And so it's not happening. And so classes are boring. Students don't understand their teachers. They hate going to training. They'll do anything to get out of training. And, and our training often is just awful, just <laughs> god awful. <laughs> but it's so, but it's interesting how people have figured out ways to bridge that gap, right? I think something like this American life and especially in our states is that way when it happens i would say it's almost a creative act when that happens you know when you're in a classroom and this definitely happened to me with shakespeare i had an extremely talented shakespeare professor i had read some shakespeare before i wasn't a fan i didn't i didn't really understand what was happening in the plays And once I had him as a professor, all of that changed for me. And I'm a huge Shakespeare fan now and have read many, 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 many of his plays and really enjoy everything, you know, the the discussions about Shakespeare, you know, the references in Station 11 to Shakespeare, you know, all that stuff I'm really into. Yeah, totally, love it. Whereas, you know, five years ago. Totally over my head. Nothing would be interesting at all. And I was thinking, you know, it's almost like there is a creative act that happens. And maybe that's why we're drawn to radio and podcasting is because you feel as though you're participating in something that's happening, that's emerging right now. Like people have never had this conversation.
1: before.
0: I don't know. It, It does feel very vibrant and alive.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I think that's so true. This idea that, you know, we're hearing something new. Mm-hmm. As I said earlier, like people thinking together. Yeah, um, people thinking really together. Exciting.
0: That's what made me think of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's exciting.
0: It's exciting. Yeah. And enjoyable. I I hope that it's enjoyable for people who are listening in, right? But but speaking for myself, when I'm listening to other people who are having that kind of conversation, I feel very much a participant in yeah. it. And, and it mm-hmm. triggers all kinds of things in my brain, right? Exactly. Synapses firing and, yeah, thinking about things. And then, yeah, you compare that to the deadness that there is in a training class where no one will speak up where the trainer asks some rhetorical question
1: oh you know. God. have you seen um <laughs> i i'm curious if you've you know in your experience in the world of training have you seen a training that's been really wonderful and successful
0: a few not very many
1: what was different about it
0: well i do think a lot of it comes from the trainer mm-hmm. right just as in teaching so much of it is about the teacher yeah right and you get and it's contagious right if the yeah. teacher is excited about something that's then another thing i was going to say about the world of education sometimes i've been tempted to try and get a little more educated myself about this these issues learning and mm-hmm. and training and those but as almost as soon as i open up a tiny flap into that world it's like oh my god i want nothing to do with this <laughs> <laughs> you know the way a lot of educators write about uh, teaching is just extremely alienating like they've never actually stood in front of a classroom full of human hmm. beings before there's something really wrong about all of yeah.
1: this <laughs> you know i was lucky enough uh i one of my many one of my too many graduate degrees is in education um oh. early on <laughs> i uh decided i would just get trained to like teach high school um Okay, since I didn't have the guts to, to become a radio producer, there was a lot of surprisingly bad pedagogy in the you know school of Ed. But I was lucky enough to read a few books uh, that about teaching writing written oh. by people who were writers and teachers of writing, who uh-huh. loved it enough that their that their books were actually quite lovely as well. Uh-huh. So there was that. But I, I I wanted to just go back to another point about teaching and training, which um, you said so much is about the teacher. And I think that's true. But I want to be careful about implying then that teaching is something that's just kind of magic and that you either have it or you don't and mm. that it's just a matter of charisma and personality. Because I think something that often gets lost, especially I would say, especially at the college level. But that's because it's where I've been teaching for a long time is that it also takes like there are things that you can do in the classroom that are better or worse. Mm-hmm. And there are decisions that you can make. And learning to do that mm-hmm. is a skill. Mm-hmm. Learning to give students a sense of why they're there is something that is not just magic and personality you know learning to use do various different activities that engage students more or less Mm -hmm. is a thing that you can actually choose to pay attention to and work on so it's not a matter of like someone who's really good at radio coming in and just naturally being a great teacher Mm. or really good at math or whatever it's that actually teaching itself is a skill and i mm-hmm. just i just have to stand up for that for a minute mm-hmm. you know because <laughs> i think mm-hmm. i think it gets lost a lot
0: yeah that's a good point i think people who are good teachers will often say they started out not being good teachers right. and it's something mm-hmm. that they worked on yes. and they thought was important and they learned as a skill
1: yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Yeah, and people who are good teachers often continue to be students of teaching, right? They they yes. study other people. They mm-hmm. you know, and and that's true for yeah, a lot of us who are engaged in these things, right? That we're we're still trying to get better and right. that gets communicated to the people who are yeah, who are following us or or trying to glean something from us. They see that and they appreciate that. Too. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, we were talking about education, and of course, you're an extremely well-educated person, broad range of degrees and expertise. And I was so curious about this podcast, the How to Survive the Future podcast, and you've described it as asking people to imagine a world where they've made it through the challenges of the present. I'm just very curious about this. So, what kinds of people have you talked to, and what are you learning through those conversations with those people?
1: Well, the project started when I was working with Who's Reaction, that organizing group, and oh. one of the things we were trying to do was to help people imagine that the world could be better than it was, and okay. that their worlds could be better than they were, you know, and that they could pull together as a group and say, hey, look, our street needs a stop sign. We can do something about that just mm-hmm. to make it really local.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Or we don't like the legislation that's being passed in the state. And if we get enough people together, we can we can change that. Imagining, though, that things can be different was key. And so mm-hmm. I was really worried about climate change at the time. Not that I necessarily feel a lot better about it now, but in any case, it was, it was at the forefront of my mind. Mm-hmm. So I decided to talk with these farmers who I kind of already knew and asked them to imagine that it was the year 2045 or 45 years in the future that it was they were at the end of their career rather than somewhere near the beginning. Mm -hmm. And uh talk as if they were old and they were reflecting back on the past few decades Mm. and what life had been like in relation to climate change and their land in particular. And um it it was just kind of a delightful experience. And I made it into this like 20 minute, you know, episode. And a friend listened to it, a collaborator of mine, and was like, we have to do this with everyone. So we managed to get a little funding for it and went out and decided to talk to some more people. You were asking about who we talked with. We were going to try to keep it fairly environmentally focused because the funding was through Indiana Humanities and they had an environmental theme uh, going on. So we talked with the farmers, Liz and Nate Brownlee, We talked with uh, a botanist who I walked through McCormick's Creek State Park in Ellettsville, as you may remember, as you may know. Uh, uh We imagined it was 25 years in the future, and she described what things were like then. Mm. We talked with a a man up in Martinsville where there are some pretty serious water pollution issues that have been going on for a few decades now that have not been addressed. Mm. And he... Talked about his family and uh, losing his daughter actually to chronic illness that may or may not have been connected to that. Oh, wow. Water pollution, something that they'll never really be able to determine. Um, right. But also his hopes for his grandson mm-hmm. um, and how much of him, his kind of soul, is in his grandson now. And we talked with a poet and essayist, Ross Gay, who is oh, yeah. uh, here in town. And uh, he imagined that I think he was in his 90s at this point and in his neighborhood sharing fruit with you know, all his neighbors and just kind of, you know, all these things. And we did one episode that was less environmentally focused specifically. It was about birth. Uh, uh, this woman who'd, who had two young children and talked about, imagined her, one of her sons being about to become a father and what she wanted that birth to be like and how she wanted it to be different than hers. So it was a really wonderful experience. It's one, honestly, that I would love to do more of. But mm-hmm. now that I am doing this weekly show, it's a little harder to to do. You
0: don't have time. Mm -hmm. I don't
1: really have time, exactly. But people who we talked with said that they really enjoyed imagining themselves into those moments. And we've done some listening events recently where we'll bring people together and play one of the episodes and with a group and people then we'll have a discussion about it. And, you know, someone at the farm one recently uh, said that he really appreciated that it was not just all gloom and doom.
0: Right. But that it's Mm -hmm. also
1: not, you know, hopefully it doesn't also come across as too Pollyanna-ish. You know, Mm -hmm. my my hope was that it, maybe there's still, there's, you know, certainly a sort of a dream quality to it, you know. But at the same time, like, we're imagining what could be. Yeah. And I think that that is really important.
0: Yeah, it's an interesting exercise. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so speaking of creative acts... You know firing up your imagination like that at least yes. for me I, I don't do that very I don't try and project myself forward at least that far yeah right and try and think like what yeah what is likely to be happening or yeah I just don't go through that kind of mental gymnastics but but what a good idea right what, especially because as you say it forces you to think well what, what could be better right yeah, at this moment in time, we do seem to be very focused on what's wrong. So, okay. The flip side of that is, yeah, what would, what would you change? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Yeah. yeah. You do, you do such great work. I'm I'm so pleased to have met <laughs> you. And then uh, my last question for you: okay. what are your what are your dreams for the future for you or for Indiana or for both?
1: Well, that's like the 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 podcast that I was just describing it's the same question isn't it kind of yeah that's Um, true
0: Uh and it's funny
1: I haven't done the exercise for myself so uh so now I have to kind of kind of do that imagining I mean I would love for I would love for this for interstates the main show I'm working on these days uh to continue to have more voices in it and continue to Mm. kind of reach more people and feel really like a meaningful part of people's communities. And I just I also kind of just want to get continue to get better at it at interviewing yeah. and having really meaningful conversations with people. So I think that for me, just kind of being able to continue to have meaningful conversations. And it might extend that out too to a hope for Indiana as well. Mm-hmm. I was earlier today, I mentioned a little earlier when we were talking a conversation with some folks from the Center for Rural Engagement here at indiana university um and they are really interested in helping people have thoughtful conversations about their communities Uh, again kind of similar to how to survive the future but people just sitting down and really having those conversations and if i could also be a small part of helping that to happen more Mm -hmm. and more deeply across the state i would love to imagine you know people across the state talking with people who they think they don't wouldn't get along with Mm -hmm. and finding some common ground and then doing something with that too i think one challenge with the podcasting world is that it's we can talk a lot and people can listen to it and they'll be like oh wow that was great and then they just go on with their day so so maybe i would hope someday for myself to be able to also help people actually then do something with Mm -hmm. those moments of inspiration and and accomplish something that they wouldn't have otherwise
0: yeah very cool well, Alex, thank you so much for the work that you do and for taking the time to come on the show. And before I let you go, is there anything you'd like to share with the audience?
1: Uh, sure. Thank you, Jennifer. that has been really delightful. Well, yeah, check out Inner States, that's I-N-N-E-R, States, wherever you get your podcasts, and also How to Survive the Future, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. And the there's probably still copies of my poetry book. Uh, that can be that can be bought on the website. It's Ledge Mule Press Mm -hmm. um, is is the publisher. And the book is Binding a Preparation.
0: Well, again, thank you so much for everything that you do and for our conversation today. Thank you. It was just delightful to talk to you.
1: Yeah, this is really fun.
0: Yeah, thanks so much. Thanks. Thanks, everybody, for listening. We really appreciate it. Don't forget to check out the show notes for additional information about this episode. And give us a like or a thumbs up on Podomatic or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We'd also love to have your support on Patreon. And get in touch. We'd love to hear from you through the Internet or Twitter or whatever means works for you. And finally, thanks to Caffeine Creek for the theme music.